Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com achieve today. Fiction. Science fiction, horror, fantasy, crime, LGBT, thriller. You have now entered the House of Mystery. With your hosts, Eric Shapiro, David North Martino, John Copenhaver, and our word on KCB 106.5 FM Los Angeles, 102.3 FM Riverside, and 1050 AM Palm Springs. Hello, welcome back to the House Mystery on KKNW 1150 AM Seattle. I'm your host, Al Warren. And I'm Kev Thompson. Okay. Now, today we're talking about uh, another A&E series that we've come across that's... Uh, uh, set to air here. It's see, it's um, the Menendez murders. Eric tells all, and uh, who's sitting in with us is uh, the executive producer and director of the series, Nancy Saslow. So thanks for being here, Nancy. You bet. So uh, now, now, Nancy. So when does this um, series start to air here? It's uh, November thirtieth, and it's going to be on at ten p.m. Yes. Yeah. And uh, so, right, A&E. A&E. How, what brought you into the series? Like, how did you start working in, in this, in the Menendez murders? Well, uh, several years ago, um, we were, uh, it, it actually started with um, Scott Peterson. I know that sounds odd, but our offices uh, were at the time uh, down the road from San Quentin Prison. And uh, Scott Peterson uh, had just been brought to uh, San Quentin. And uh, part of the coverage was that when he arrived at San Quentin, uh, he had something like 3,000 letters from all kinds of women, some marriage proposals, and we thought, gosh, who are these women? So we started to put together an idea um, to search for women who married um, uh, men inside with li- virtually no hope of, of getting out, and who are these women and why they do it. And during the course of that, um, Tammy Menendez, who Eric Menendez had married in prison in 1999, had been promoting uh, a book she had written uh, called They Said We'd Never Make It. And we sort of stopped with Tammy because she has such an interesting... Um, story, and it was unlike um, sort of what you would assume. And so we uh, spoke for a long time and convinced her to work with us, and we produced a documentary uh, on Tammy for A&E Andy Films, which also aired on A&E, and thus began a relationship of sorts with the family. And during the course of that, I had spoken with Eric, of course, and um, in this past couple of years, when uh, it had been 20 years uh, last year um, since the uh, the final verdict in uh, 1996, and uh, there were all sorts of Menendez programs uh, planned, 
Um, and uh, most prominent was the scripted version that Dick Wolf was doing for NBC. And we said, you know, this is the time to really do the entire story and the full story. And because we knew that access was the key to differentiating our program, we approached Tammy and Eric, and they said yes. That's amazing. Uh, so when you actually uh, got to talk to Eric, um, were you surprised by how he was, who he was, compared to what you thought he was? Or his demeanor? Well, I'll, I'll tell you, I had been surprised the first time that I had spoken with him. Um, I think people, when something has been in the news as this had at the time, uh, between 1989 and 1996, and, you know, even subsequently, we tend to have snapshots in our minds of, you know, this 18- and 23-year-old and 26-year-old uh, kid, essentially. And the person that I talked with over a period of months for this program um, is a 47-year-old man. And you, you begin to hear that. So I would say the perspective of someone who has been in prison longer than he's been out, someone that you thought you knew because of all of the media coverage, but really didn't because he's never had an opportunity, and I should say he's probably had the opportunity, but he's never taken the opportunity to tell his story uh, unfettered by a courtroom. So I can tell you that the series of interviews that we did over a period of months, and the reason it took that long is that, you know, prisoners don't have, you know, great access to the phone. So these were done basically in 12-minute segments, and, and you folks who do interviews no. all the time can understand that if you are talking to somebody um, who's basically sharing his 47 years with you, that 12 minutes of time can be a daunting task. But I have to give him credit because he was ready to tell his story um, unfettered by a courtroom. Um, he was ready to give specific details and relive basically his childhood, um, the, the time leading up to the murders, and the time afterwards, and I found him to be extraordinary, really, in the way in which he expressed himself, but also in the um, in the authenticity that he brought to all of it. And it was um, it was it was stunning to hear him to hear him express himself and to hear him reflect as a 47-year-old man and not this 18-year-old kid you know, in sweaters, quite frankly, that we remember from the first trial. Now, Nancy, kudos to you, because I work in the corrections field, and I know how difficult it is for an inmate just to get to the phone, let alone convey all of his thoughts at 12 to 15 minutes at a time. So kudos to you for that. But at any point during the interviews, did you feel like what he was telling you was was polished and thought out just to, I don't know, assuage any guilt on his part? Well, that's the thing. I, I think that he, you know, I, I don't think this was, um, this wasn't convincing a jury. It knows, and, and I'm, I've been in this business a pretty long time and um, grew up in it as a journalist. And so... I didn't, as we like to say, just sort of fall off the back of the turnip truck. Um, I think I know um, when I'm hearing something that's true. And I not only heard specifics that I had never heard in all of the research, but the sense of consistency and authenticity um, is, is blinding at times. No, I didn't feel like he had spent the last 27 years in prison coming up with a story or polishing one. I felt that there were times, for example, that um, he would share something extremely difficult and then really have to go away for a few days because, you know, as, as you know, having worked in the prison system, um, generally speaking, in order to live day to day, you don't sit around thinking about your crime. You don't sit around dwelling on it. But there were a couple of things that were remarkable about Eric. The first is how consistent, how heartfelt, um, 
how uh, challenging it was for him to to share these stories. And the second uh, thing is, it's, he has more than regret; he has remorse. I I'm not sure that this is somebody who can ever forgive himself for what he's done. He acknowledges it. This is not a um, uh, this is not an apology tour, um, as it's usually called now in America when when people mm-hmm. do this sort of thing. Yes. This is a, an opportunity that he finally took to tell, not even his side, to tell what he lived and to tell where he is right now. And it's it's truly uh, an extraordinary piece of television. And I'm not saying that to pat us on the back. I'm saying when you bear witness to somebody who essentially comes clean, um, uh, it's it's quite something. Did it change your opinion of him? Uh, it did. It did. It, it wasn't uh, as it, I didn't go from. Gosh, he didn't. You know, these. We all. This is not a whodunit. We all know uh, that they did the killings, but it reinforced some things that, after the first time I had spoken with him. Um, that I really came to believe, and that is that uh, he was terribly abused as a child. And I, I don't state this as fact. I'm saying that uh, in the course of talking with him and many other experts, he did something that I believe. But I think one of the things that's important about this program is that at no time do we say that the abuse and the fear and all of the things that he had were justification for killing his parents. There is no justification for killing his parents. And the important thing that I think viewers will will understand is that Eric Menendez doesn't believe there's justification, and he believes he should have been punished. But I think this program takes us to a place because of the way in which Eric spoke with us, and because of all the people that we got to talk with us, um, uh, as they shared with us their experiences, I think that this takes us to a place about the sentencing. And whether at the time, because of a confluence of things, not the least of which uh, involved what was going on in the Los Angeles District Attorney's Office in terms of a series of high-profile losses. Um, and nine days before the second Menendez trial, having had the OJ verdict, um, a judge who uh, reversed himself um, inexplicably in the second trial, and he had presided over the first. a An American conscience about... Um, child sexual abuse that really wasn't as developed as it is now. We understand things now that we didn't 21 years ago. So I think what this series does is, number one, it gives us a window to um, how somebody, how brothers could get to a point where they committed this heinous act. And number two, I think it makes us perhaps take a second look at the sentencing. Not at the verdicts, but at the sentencing. Well, Nancy, um, these murders happened in 1989, if I remember correctly. Yes. And, okay, some of our listening audience is a little bit younger. They may not remember the Menendez murders. Um, can you give us a very brief recap of, of what happened and, and why we're here today? Yes, well, on August 20th, 1989, um, in Beverly Hills, California, uh, a rather uh, wealthy couple, uh, Jose Menendez and Kitty Menendez, uh, were found um, by their sons uh, in their home, um, brutally murdered. And um, there was no connection to anything at the time on why this would happen. I mean, you can imagine Beverly Hills, California, I think has maybe two murders a year. This kind of thing doesn't happen. And... Uh, he was an entertainment executive, so the story really went ballistic. Um, and subsequently, in the investigation, uh, and I would suggest you know watching the series to see how it all ties together. 
but uh, the investigation led eventually to um, a confession by Eric to um, his, his psychologist. And subsequently they were arrested and um, there still wasn't a good explanation for why they did it until the trial when um, Leslie Abramson, who was an unbelievable criminal defense attorney, um, said that uh, they had been molested and they acted out of fear. They had not only been molested as young children, uh, Lyle first and then Eric from age 6 to 18, but they had been told repeatedly um, by their parents that if they ever told they would be killed. And so their story was um, that they killed out of fear. Oh, wow. So, yeah, but in 1989, this was front page news. Yeah. That, that yes, this it was, was. This was front page news that went away for a while. And, you know, people who are younger don't remember. But the Menendez trial was at the time the trial of the century. And it basically launched a national audience for uh, a network called Court TV. Um, it was the first time that we saw lawyers talking to media on the steps. It was OJ before OJ. So if, you, if you're young enough or you don't remember, this was a huge deal. This was the first time, wasn't the first time for cameras in the courtroom, but it was the first time that it was around something that was so sensational, um, and the the media went crazy. It it basically uh, created the industry of you know TV lawyers who we see now all the time. But um, uh, all of the pundits that you see that talk about these trials that come up, whether it's you know OJ or Michael Jackson or Casey Anthony mm-hmm. and onward and onward, that really came out of the uh, Menendez trial. And it was also, I think, the first time that we got a, um, a look at a wealthy family, if you will, dirty laundry, in that, um, you know, no one was talking about wealth associated with um, child sexual abuse. And I think that sort of sensational element gave rise to a national audience. There's a, there's a story that we were um, not able to confirm, but we were told that um, President Clinton at the time was so interested and captivated by the trial that he would sort of sneak away in the White House to an anteroom and watch it. Now, you know, that wasn't just because of the sensationalism. I mean, you have to remember President Clinton was a lawyer, but it really captured America like nothing else had captured it before. Yeah, as I remember it too back then, and and I'm old enough, uh, it seemed like there was two two audiences um, a lot of people didn't believe in their claims of sexual abuse and thought they were just doing it to uh, get the money and then there's people that believed the sexual claim um, and that's sort of what I was hinting at so did it, did you how did you feel back in 89 about the case and has it changed now honestly I don't remember feeling passionately one way or the other, which is why this journey for us has been fascinating. Uh, It's been truly interesting because, um, you know, I I feel as if I've sort of come to it uh, anew. Um, I was working uh, at the time uh, as a uh, producer um, at a, a CBS station in San Francisco, and so I didn't really... Um, I, I don't really remember uh, all of those things about it, but I can tell you this. You're absolutely right. The national narrative that people walked uh, away with was that these were two Beverly Hills rich kids who killed their parents for money. And there was another part of the audience that said, oh, my gosh, these kids were terrorized. Um, a lot of that was along gender lines. Um, a reporter, Jody Baskerville from KCBS in Los Angeles, told me that most of the women reporters really believed them and felt for the guys. And most of the camera people who were men 
at the time, um, said absolutely not true. And interestingly enough, the hung jury split that way as well. Yeah, yeah. Um, interesting. Now, you only got to talk to Eric. Did you ever talk to his brother, or is it just Eric completely? It's it's just Eric. And, you know, at a certain point, that was more or less a choice. You know, both of them absolutely did the crime. But our assertion is that the Menendez story really is very much Eric's story. And you have to understand, these are not young men who shared anything with each other because they were under threat. It was Eric telling his brother the week before, uh, actually just a few days before uh, the killings, that um, created an environment where they felt that this was, uh, that their killing was imminent. It was sort of a kill or be killed. And ultimately it was Eric who confessed to his therapist um, that got them there. The bottom line, I was you know, saying that we really, we knew, I had access to Eric, and part of it, as you guys know, is access. And when we continue to think about it, you know, no one has ever approached this uh, as Eric's story. But essentially, it is. And again, that is not to dismiss, well, part in it, or um, the fact that he, too, paid the price for those actions, or any of that. It's, it's not it's not a diss, if you will. But we find Eric's ability to express himself extraordinary, and um, the willingness to do that equally so. Um, and essentially there were points at which he, had he not done what he did, in essence, or had what happened to him not happened to him, that this would not be something that we'd be talking uh, to you about today. So um, I think that Eric's is an incredibly compelling story, and when you're uh, doing that over a period of time with audiences, I think that uh, he's the one to take the journey with. There's a lot of shows that have been on like Lifetime and a lot of different movies and stuff about it. They all sort of tell a different narrative. Um, do you feel like what you get from Eric is, is you believe it's really the true story? I do believe it's his truth. I don't know that anybody, any of us can come in and say the truth. But right. here's um, what I think is important, is that Eric is certainly our main character but this narrative over five hours is expressed through an awful lot of people uh, and, and has many different perspectives. That was critical, and uh, Eric and his wife Tammy certainly understood that. So um, Eric's not the only voice, uh, far from it. We talked probably with uh, more than 30 uh, people. We had, I think, some 30 interviews. Um, and... Those include family members. Um, those include, of course, his wife, Tammy. But it also includes um, people like Carol Nahara, who was the second chair in the second trial, uh, prosecutor. Um, it includes Gil Garcetti, former Los Angeles district attorney. It includes Chris Darden, uh, best known for the OJ trial, but somebody who was um, part of the Los Angeles District Attorney's Office for many, many years and gave us really uh, an up-close view as to what was going on in the DA's office. So we pursued this story far beyond Eric Menendez's uh, tale because it was critical for us to, to do that, to explore beyond what Eric said, um, the, the true meaning of all of what happened. And, you know, this is not just a story about uh, a killing. This is a story about child sexual abuse. This is a story about the possibility of judicial overreach. This is a story about the Los Angeles uh, District Attorney's Office. Um, this is a story about media coverage. 
it's about a lot of things. It's not just um, a, a tale from the perspective of one person. Uh, one of our consultants, uh, for example, was Seattle's own Ann Bremner, who is... One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. A legal pundit um, well-known uh, for many uh, for commenting on many trials and um, who was part of the Amanda Knox case. So Anne not only is um, a part of this as a legal analyst, but um, she was also a consultant to the project. So we didn't just start and end, if you will, with Eric Menendez. We pursued this as journalists to get a full picture. What's different about this is that you do have Eric Menendez's perspective and storytelling as you never had before. But we certainly didn't stop there. That wouldn't have served the piece well, and that wouldn't have served the audience. Now, Nancy, I I would be remiss if I didn't ask this. I mean, I I understand that uh, as the story is right now, we've got two young victims of sexual abuse by their parents which eventually led them to kill because they felt at the time that either we killed them or they're eventually going to kill us. Now, back in 1989, I was still in the military, and I remember hearing about this story and thinking, well, that's just a couple of spoiled brats that killed their parents. You know, who knows why? And I went on with my life. As I began to become more familiar with the Menendez brothers, my opinion of that didn't really change much, even though the allegations of sexual abuse came out. Mm-hmm. Now, 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 here we are, we're making a series about this movie. I'm, I, I'm, I, I'm willing, I, I'm, I'm on the fence here. I'm willing to understand that these boys killed because of maybe repressed anger from the sexual abuse or they felt threatened. But, and, and this is the killer, this is the deal breaker for me. After the killings occurred, they go on this extravagant spending spree. 
what what is that about? You know, did you kill them for the money, or did you kill them because of the sexual abuse? I mean, you're out buying Rolexes and and Porsches. You're you're out spending money like it's going out of style. Psychologically, I'm willing to believe that maybe you felt that was owed to you. But you you know, did you see where I'm going, Nancy? I do, and and you are not alone. Um, and that's one of the inspirations for for doing the series because I would have been remiss had I not asked Eric that. And we would have been remiss not to include that part of um, what the story was. And what we came to find out, um, and, you know, I would suggest you you watch the series because as it uh, unfolds, that is included. Now, you may go away thinking the same thing, but I don't think so because... um, the the spending, which was sort of a centerpiece uh, in the first trial, mm-hmm. really became Absolutely. less of one in the second trial. Um, these, I think, you will walk away believing that there's no way they committed this brutal act for money. It's just uh, when you hear the people who weigh in on it talk about it, um, it almost becomes ridiculous. Um, but, it, you know, it's a good point that, um, that there was a spending spree. It was Lyle. Mm-hmm. It was an error. Um, Lyle, very much like his mother, um, used to, when he would be depressed or when he would be upset, just like his mom, they would shop. That's what they did. Eric, not so much. Not very much attached to things. But... The, the bottom line is that this notion that they killed their parents for money. These two kids never wanted for anything in terms true. of... Um, That's true. Uh, they, they never wanted for anything. They didn't have to kill their parents for money. They had money. So um, I'm not suggesting that um, th- this was justified, and I'm not suggesting that you don't have a point that was shared by an awful lot of people. I'm suggesting that when they went down that road... Um, we ended up with two hung juries the first uh, go-round. And the reason was that that story didn't fly. You know, it, sounds like, it sounds like shameless self-promotion, but watch the show because those things are addressed. We didn't shy away from anything. And, and I think you will see, look, we're not in the tank, if you will, for Eric Menendez. That's not why A&E supported this. This is an opportunity not to... Um, give these men a pass, but this is a, an opportunity to open, to be open to what happened mm-hmm. from a, a a variety of points of view, and to make your own decision as to whether justice was done. One thing I can say, one thing that um, strikes me is. Uh, uh, in a lot of the shows I've seen before on the case, um, they've suggested that uh, Lyle sexually assaulted Eric. Did you guys cover that? Uh oh. Yes, that is true. Um, Eric's first abuser was his brother. Um, the perspective on that, and again, this is not a show about excuses, but the perspective on that is that Lyle was modeling his father's behavior toward him. Right. That's what I mean by understanding. Um, Lyle talked about that during the trial. I mean, this is not a a revelation that we've never heard before, but I think a lot of people forget that um, this started very, very early, and um, uh, Lyle, Lyle basically was mimicking what his father had been doing to him. Yeah, no, and I, I agree with that. I it's just, very, it's very sad. It's, it's all, yeah. it's all very tragic. And and you know, again, I take the point that well, it, it was so. You know, we also addressed was this convenient because it never came out until the lawyers got involved. And you know, we certainly represent that point of view. But um, the the depth, the specificity, and again, the authenticity with which this story is told. Um, Honestly, 
You just can't make that up. No. No, I sort of uh, uh, believe in it, but I just wonder how Eric could get beyond that. Like, uh, a lot of times when we're dealing with true crime and and sexual abuse has been going on, like in this sort of situation uh, with girls or boys, um, how did he separate Lyle from his father? Because they're both doing the same thing to him. Do you know what I'm saying? So that that's just sort well, of the angle. Well, he was... He was six, and when you're the younger brother, when the focus is on your older brother, and you're just trying to get attention and get love, he and you have no idea what's going on. You just know, for example, that your dad has these special moments with you and is paying attention to you. You have no idea that this is not normal because... Jose normalized this, these actions. You know, you don't know that there's anything wrong with this. And it's not until a few years later. And, and if, you, if it's just you and your brother and you never talk about this, and you certainly don't talk about it because your father and your mother have told you never to talk about the family, outside of the family, um, you don't know this is not normal until years later. And... Um, as the, according to Eric, as the sexual abuse um, increased over the years in terms of what his father did, um, it appeared that it wasn't the act of love that he was initially convinced at a very young age um, that that it, it appeared to be, at least initially. And so... That wraps up into fear, that wraps up, in, and, and when you can't tell, I mean, generally speaking, um, the discussion, and we have an expert in PTSD, and we have experts in child abuse, and kids don't tell. Kids don't tell when it's not safe, and when the, the, the people in your life who are supposed to help you think that you're safe make it unsafe. You don't know what to do, and you don't know how to read that. And if you're not talking to anybody else, you don't know that it's not normal. Yeah. His, his father or his his uh, brother, you know, I don't think he did. I think the, the he, he knows and understands that his brother was his first uh, abuser, but I think it's, it's interesting, the reflection of a 47-year-old man uh, on what happened does not, you know, I don't think he has feelings of anger uh, against his brother because he knew his brother was just modeling his dad. No, Now, Nancy, how do you answer the people, though, that say, listen, that excuse is old. You know, so many people blame their murders. Well, I was molested. I was molested. You know, how do you answer that in this case? Well, you're talking about the abuse excuse, which is, uh, one of the phrases that came out uh, during the trial was um, uh, Alan Dershowitz, the famous lawyer, uh, came up with it. And uh, I, all I can say to you is this, that in the conversations that I had, um, not only with Eric, but with the family and with abuse experts and with psychiatrists and uh, with the, the the depth of the interview list, if we if you will, um, there's just I can tell you in this case, there's just no way that they made it up. There there are too many consistencies. There are too many um, patterns that um, are like neon signs to what happened in this family, and I don't think again I. I think that it's very difficult to believe if we came from, I mean, I think we all come from dysfunctional families, but one of the things mm -hmm. we as a team learned uh, as we were in production on this is, gosh, maybe we came from dysfunctional families, but it wasn't this. And when we began to understand the the horror and the true shame that and, and that these kids who are abused feel, I think it's important to acknowledge that and to also acknowledge 
that it's not a justification for killing your parents. And so I don't understand what I, I, I understand that people find it difficult to believe because those acts are difficult to believe anyway. And when they're assigned to parents, you know, those of us who are parents say, I can't imagine ever doing this to my kid. But we know it's real and we know it happens. And, you know, I can't imagine why uh, two young men, even to save themselves, would get on the stand and say what they said uh, in order to justify, if you will, um, killing their parents. I, I can't imagine a scenario, honestly, where that makes any sense. Not after I've talked with Eric, but especially not after I've talked with, uh, with experts, with people who know a lot more about this than I do. It, it, it appears to be, in today's society, that wealth creates distance inside families. So, you know, you've got the Menendez brothers who need nurturing. You know, they, they, they need father figure. They need mother figure. You've got the father that's out creating his millions. And oftentimes you've got the mother that's out, you know, doing her, her social activities. And you, you've got these brothers that are basically kind of raising themselves. And in some instances, they have a nanny that's possibly raising them. So that creates an emotional distance between the children and the parents. Now, you've added into the equation the possibility of sexual abuse, which was talked about in the trial. So... You know, that's, you know, creates animosity between the children and the parents. Do you think, though, that the wealth and that distance actually made it easier for those brothers to kill their parents? Maybe, maybe not seeing them as parents so much as, you know, enemies or abusers or somebody that I need to kill. Uh, I don't, and I don't for a number of reasons. First of all, I don't think wealth created distance in this family. Um, and that may seem very odd to say because we're also saying that it was an abusive household. Um, but I don't believe that it was about money. I don't think that this family was distant from one another at all. You had two young men, for example, who played tennis. I mean, they were like show horses for their father, and their father was all over them in terms of uh, their tennis games. And, in fact, Lyle Hernandez was so good that his uh, former tennis coach um, said that, you know, given a little bit of time, he would have been top 20 in the world. So... This was not a family. I mean, his father was at every match. His mother, I mean, you know, he was, um, he was a sports dad, and he was really tough with them by all accounts. And, you know, they went through a ton of coaches because of that, and it may have been dysfunctional, but it certainly was not distant. I mean, if, if anything, it was a very close family in that, you know, they didn't have a lot of social gatherings. You know, Jose was not at all into the whole Hollywood thing. thing. She was not very much a socialite. She was, by all accounts, depressed, suicidal. Mm. Oh, um, wow. And so I, I'm talking about mental health issues. Uh, we're not talking about money. Where I do think money came in was that I do believe, to a certain extent, that money, uh, that the fact that they came from money um, gave them the same advantage, uh, a disadvantage, I'm sorry, um, in terms of the eyes of the jury and in the eyes of the police and the eyes of um, a lot of the audience, a lot of viewers, because, you know, the perception is these kids had everything and they just threw it away because of money. So I think the wealth ended up hurting them from an external standpoint, but that I don't think at all it was a factor within the family. And I don't think it was money that made, that, that 
uh, were, that brought these boys to a point where they killed their parents. Uh, do the boys still have a relationship at all? With each other? Yeah. Yeah. Um, letters. Are, are they allowed to visit at all? No. They've not talked to one another in now 22 years. Oh, my gosh. They can't. The, the Department of Corrections has laws and rules about that, so they have no direct contact. But, you know, occasional letters and those sorts of things. And family members who talk with each other respectively are able to, you know, kind of update them. Yeah. Well, you know, yeah. yeah. Now, now I, I think this is a fair question, and, and I'm speaking as an authority in the corrections field. But Nancy, have you ever thought about using your influence maybe to ask the Department of Corrections to allow a contact visit between the brothers. Are you familiar with the California Department of Corrections? <laughs> I, I am. They allow Manson to get married. So, <laughs> Yeah, but it is, it, it's actually against the law uh, in California to um, have a one-on-one you know, you can't request um, a one-on-one media um, film visit. You know, I, I've gone and sat down and visited with Eric, and I can do that as a private citizen. But I can't bring a camera crew in um, and sit down. I can. You've seen all those shows uh, that I believe are on another network, um, uh, the lockup shows. And those yes. interviews are not prearranged. They're random. So... If you play that forward, I could show up with my camera crew and get into any prison that I want. And if Eric Menendez or Lyle Menendez happen by, I could talk to them. But the chances of that happening are slim and none. So you don't even try. And there are folks that have, you know, lied to get in. There are folks, you know, in the in the media and in the press that have. Um, attempted to do those sorts of things, but, you know, in this case, the written press has a uh, has an advantage in that they can go and they can, I think, get permission to get a pencil and a paper, if you can believe it, and take notes on an interview, but that's about it. And the reason for that um, has to do with sensitivity toward victims and, and families, and I understand that. I respect that. I, I My personal opinion is that I think a little transparency would go a long way in the system, but, you know, we make the request, and then we accept the answer. No, and, and I, I completely, completely understand that. But I would like to just kind of see a little bit of a a good ending, you know, to, to this series, you know, where, you know, we can go away from the reenactments, and this is reality right here. You know, this is the brothers meeting for the first time in 22 years. And, you know, and, and I'm speaking as a brother that doesn't get to see his brother very often at all. Um, that would just, I don't know, maybe I'm just being sappy here. Yeah. But but it, it would just be kind of really cool, you know, to end this series with that. Sure. That would have been, uh, that would have been great, but um, not going to happen. And uh, perhaps the best thing that, the series do is open some eyes in terms of the sentencing to look at laws which have changed uh, and to see if there is an opportunity um, for another trial. There is a possibility for appeal. And, you know, again, our job was not to campaign and our job was not to uh, influence a potential jury pool. Our job was to go in and to, um, to yes, get the story from uh, Eric's perspective as much as we possibly could because it's a story that we've never heard before with this detail, with this specificity, with this depth, um, also to surround it with other people who experience this Menendez phenomenon, um, if, if I can call it that, and to shed some light. I mean, that, that's why we got into this business. You want to talk zappy, that's me. Uh, you get into <laughs> business um, as a journalist 
to shine a light. And this, we believe, shines a light on a lot of things. It shines a light on uh, incarceration. It shines a light on sentencing, um, uh, on child sexual abuse and the impact and what we know now that we didn't know then. Um, I think it's bigger than the Menendez trial. And what I hope that people walk away with is not only the sense of Eric's story, but the sense of um, what happened and to look forward to maybe that there is a hope at least to get a second look. Wow. Well, that's amazing. And we look forward to uh, seeing the series. Now, it's going to be showing on Thursday, November 30th at uh, 10 p.m. Eastern Pacific on A&E. And uh, we look forward to it. The Menendez Murders, Eric Tells All. Um, again, it's been a very, very good show. Thank you for being uh, on the show. We've had Nancy Saslow. To find out to find out more about our show, guests, or to listen to past shows from our archive, please go to www.houseofmysteryradio.com. Show's over for now. Was it as good for you as it was for me? Well, good night. This has been a production of Something Weird Media. I'll be back. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. You've been listening to the House of Mystery radio show. To find out more about our guests, hosts, or shows, go to www.houseofmystery.com. Show is over for now. Was it as good for you as it was for me? Well, good night. This has been a production of Something Weird Media. I'll be back.